Hello and welcome to the VentureForth Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani. We'll be chatting with some of the most interesting founders, startups, and VCs about the experiences that led them to where they are today, what they're currently working on, as well as the journey ahead of them. Before we get started, I'd like to apologize for the sound quality of today's episode. We were trying a new call recording method that didn't quite work out perfectly, but promise that future episodes will be much better. And without further ado, here's Howard. On the show today, we've got Howard Linden, co-founder and general partner of the Early Stage Seed Fund Social Leverage and founder and chairman of StockTwist, the real-time financial communications platform for the financial and investing community. He's got a massive following on Twitter and shares everything from his favorite trade ideas to root canal selfies. As an analyst with Social Leverage, I've had the pleasure of working with Howard for nearly two years now, and I'm very excited to have him on the VentureForth podcast. Thank you for being here. Hey, Joe. Great to talk to you. Um, I'm trying to replace what you look like, you know, because uh, it's been so long since I wanted to hang out with you. Okay, now I remember. Okay, Joe, that Joe. For, um, for everybody listening, for everybody listening, first of all, Joe, whatever his last name is, the hardest name in America to spell. So many continents, <laughs> and Donald Trump should take care of you when he's elected president. Um, Joe is at the patience of Job. Uh, puts up with all the nonsense at at social leverage, which is you know pranks, uh, yelling, uh, last minute details. So. Uh, it's a thrill to be here. You are the man, and you threw one hell of a Stocktoberfest. Ah, I appreciate that. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, actually, uh, about Stocktoberfest. I only said that for my wife, who's standing right behind me. <laughs> Hi, Ellen. <laughs> uh, Howard, can you tell us a little about your journey to this point and how you became the Howard Lindzen that we know and love today? There was there were six or seven operations. The fifth one is when the skin graft started to take. The... Um, Born in Toronto, uh, so that's where I get my wicked, cunning sense of humor, and uh, moved to Arizona, go to Arizona State. I ran away from home, uh, first took a lot of money from my parents, like Donald Trump, and uh, then just, I got early, early in on illegal aliens in Mexico and built an empire, I mean in Phoenix, and so now I have a team of thousands and thousands of illegal people coding for me in a sweatshop in Tempe, and we've started hundreds of companies. Oh, wait a minute. This is, this is the wrong show I think I'm, I'm talking for. What was the question again? <laughs> I can't wait to see the uh, emails and letters that come in about this podcast. Um, <laughs> but All right. I, I, you know what? I can only do this with you, Joe, so that will be my last goofy answer. So let's, let's keep it going. I will promise to be on point now. Oh, totally. Uh, no, this is going in. Um, <laughs> it has to go in. So, this is the real Howard. Definitely. And so one thing that you're known for, both on and offline, as, as we've just seen, is your sense of humor. Can you share how you developed that? Yeah, I think I think I was left alone a lot, now that I think about it, and uh, in a dark room. No, I, I think I had a TV when I was maybe 11, so I was kind of spoiled. And, you know, where you had a click... There was like 12 channels. And if you went past the channel, you had to go all the way around again. This is, you know, 
I'm not a millennial like you, Joe. And so it would take 45 minutes to get back to the channel because uh, you had to go through all the channels. And, and I also wore a patch as a kid. So, of course, I was getting abused at school. So you had to have a sense of humor because I had this floating eye. Um, and my mom dressed me in knickers and, and high socks. So it was just, I was really, it was really a tough childhood. And um, I remember at night, because I had to wear this patch like 24-7, and they would put the patch on your good eye. It was like torture because I could only see out of my back. <laughs> and so not only was I, did I have a TV, it all looked fuzzy to me, but Johnny Carson was, I would stay up late and watch Johnny Carson. He would just, the guests and him would just make me, just it was just hysterical it was like I, something that i'd never it was like as a young kid i probably was the youngest kid ever watching that show i just blew my mind how, how everybody seemed to just goof off and in, in real time and and have a great time on that show and you know he used to have all these great comedians uh, come on like gary shanley i remember watching with my dad gary shanley the very first time i just remember where i was watching with my dad and, and we, my dad cracking up and I was cracking up and he was just telling, you know, Jewish dad jokes. And I've uh, been, you know, I don't know if I picked up on it or if I was just inspired by it or I had the that gene that allows me to look at the world uh, upside down. But uh, I did a lot of comedy as a kid at Yuck Yucks in Toronto, not well. And so I've carried that twisted look at the world uh, and it's gotten, it's really helped me. Uh, and people seem to like it. So, you know, occasionally I cross the boundaries, but you, you, you put stuff out there, and now there's all these social tools to put that stuff out there, and so the platforms exist that people seem to uh, stick to it, to my shtick. And uh, it's definitely been, you know, a differentiator for in terms of in the business that I'm in. Toronto produced a lot of great comedians. Can you name some of the uh, contemporaries that you might have worked with? I, uh, at Yuck Yucks, there were just hundreds, and um, I remember watching. Well, the problem with comedy, too, is and people don't understand how like, it's kind of like a, a founder or an entrepreneur. You go up on stage, and you're just naked, and just the world is there to pick at your ideas, and you have to get the timing right, and you have to have the ideas, and you have to have the crowd. It's very much like a, a founder, uh, if not harder, because you really have no team. You're alone. I mean, if you have a guitar or you can juggle, I guess you have a uh, uh, kind of like having a team. You have a prop, and, and but I didn't never have that. I just me and my mic. And I remember watching, sneaking into. Uh, he was too young to get into Yuck Yucks, but watching Jim Carrey uh, at local, you know, bars that would have him. He was famous in Toronto already at 14 and 13, doing Muppet impressions and contortions. And because, you know, at 11, like I said, I was into comedy. So I was just, you know, uh, in the newspaper in Toronto, just figuring out where where all this stuff was. And then uh, probably the best was Jim. And then when I actually started doing uh, comedy at Yuck Yucks, I was about 17 or 18 at, like, amateur nights, I remember seeing, um, well, I'm having a brain fart, but uh, uh, Shrek, uh, what's his name? Mike Myers. Oh, yeah, Mike Myers. And he was like my age, maybe a year older. Uh, and he just, so much talent. I mean, raw comedy, like the voices from his world. Uh, not so much Muppet world, like real people from his family. And he just played. Like, he just knew 
didn't know who he was, but uh, you couldn't. Rem- you just once you saw him famous years later, you're like, oh my god, you knew that guy was going to be famous. And then there was a lot of Second City. I grew up watching John Candy and Eugene Levy, who was just hysterical. You know, so Toronto had all the great comics and Second City Television in my formative years, and that's the kind of stuff that stuck with me. So I met them all. You just that was Toronto. It was just one of those cities that had great comics. When you realized that comedy wasn't going to be your full-time calling, um, what became uh, your big break after that? Well, this, I, I'm going to count this as my big break. I'm 51, and I hope my hope my career goes on another plane after this podcast. Oh, that was a shameless plug. So hang on. Uh, the the there's no big break. I, I mean, the big break came. You make your own big break, so there's no such thing as a big break. I thought I was going to get my big break because maybe I thought I was going to be a comic when I was like six months into doing, I wasn't very good, but I was six months into doing amateur nights at Yuck Yucks in Toronto and not really enjoying it and not really good. And I think they were having a best of, uh, Yuck Yucks was famous, so some guy from LA was flying in and I think like three people died. So I, like, I was like 18th on the list. I bumped up to like 15th. And I got to be in the like best of Toronto night. And I think I went on third ahead of a, a guy that crushed it. And I, I mean, I bumped. I mean, and my mom booed. My sisters were booing. It was so bad. You know, I think I peed in my pants. And the next 10 or 11 comics all became famous. Like, they just made fun of me. The next 10 or 11 comics changed their routines to make fun of me and all went on to stardom. So I think I was the only guy that didn't make it. And I launched a lot of careers, probably. Um, so that was the low point. I think that the, the big break was when I searched the term, term sheet in 2005. And I got Fred Wilson and Brad Feld's blogs, learned about term sheets, wrote a term sheet for golfnow.com, which is a company in Phoenix. And that went on to be a great exit. And that's when I definitely went full in on angel investing. So probably 2005 was the big break. But, you know, you make your break. I was I had seen this golf deal, wanted to do it, um, figured out how to, I wasn't an investor per se in private companies that was running a hedge fund and wanted to learn how to do angel investing and the web and Google search kind of changed my life. Well, what was the biggest deal that you missed out on? This week or ever? Let's go with ever. Because uh, this week, this, there was a killer sale at Nordstrom, and I uh, was in, in Florida. Um, so ever. Well, I mean, dollar-wise, Twitter, back-to-back Twitter Zynga within six months. Some pretty genius calls that I made. And then, um, uh, I mean, how do you top that? I'm hoping that uh, I can't top that ever in three lifetimes. All right, so you mentioned Twitter, uh, and you were also the founder of StockTwits. So what, what led to the creation of uh, StockTwits, and what problems were you trying to solve? We don't know. We'd like to plead the fifth on that, Joe. We agreed not to talk about that. I was trying to make money. That's always a problem I'm trying to solve. Uh, of the unsuspecting public. So the markets work, Joe. God, I always have to tell you this. So, no, the problem I was trying to solve was I, I had been shown Twitter, Andy Swan, Fred Wilson, 
uh, were like bugging me. They thought I'd be great on it. And I started, and I was talking about all the places I was peeing. It was like Foursquare for peeing was my original idea, where you could map out uh, my uh, bladder to see if I could efficiently know ahead of time where to stop to go to the bathroom. And honestly, that was the game, and it was stupid, and I was using my BlackBerry to tweet. And these, a lot of people liked it for some stupid reason. And I got bored with it quickly. You know, I was like, why, why, you know, why don't I start talking about stocks that I'm buying? Just kind of like BlackBerry had the pin, and that became huge amongst brokers. So I just started doing it, and Soren, who uh, was uh, a financial hacker kid at Coder at the time was in my stream, and he was like, I was like, why isn't there a Twitter for uh, finance? You know, twitter.finance.com. And Soren responded to it and said, oh, we could build that. And that was how it started. The key, I think the key thing was the cash tag. We didn't call it the cash tag at the time. Probably, I think, Chris Corvo. And I used to go back and forth, and Chris, who was the original CTO, was like, we got to name it something. But more importantly, we ha I had this idea to, uh, where Soren, myself, and Chris were sitting around. We were trying to figure out how to curate you know, the Apple. Like, do I like green apples, or am I at the store buying an Apple phone or iPod back in the day? And uh, that's where we came up with the dollar sign. And then it was just, you know, we were the first guys doing it. I would tweet at Fred, hey, I'm buying some dollar sign R-I-M-M. Fred thought it was genius uh, and a great idea. And I assumed Twitter would have just adopted it. I wouldn't have to build a business. But they weren't interested in this whole verticalization. So we went and started StockTwits. That's how it started. Probably uh, beginning of uh, 09, we finished the first website. And uh, how's that cash tag uh, court case with Twitter been going? Uh, we'll win. We'll, win. we'll probably win a billion dollars. You know, I think at the time, you know, we talked to the lawyers about it, and it was like just like the hashtag. They were like, maybe my lawyers were wrong because they're, they're always wrong. But uh, the we just didn't want to spend money worrying about, you know, adoption was what mattered, not who owns what and trademarks. So. We weren't thinking about. We didn't think we could get a any kind of trademark slash uh, patent off of it stuff. Tagging, you know, for Q-sips and stuff had been around forever, and it was just a community type thing. And it, that was the least of our problems in trying to build a business uh, back then. So uh, we just never did anything around the the dollar sign. We just gave it away. And this is a slight detour, but if you were the CEO of Twitter, how would you fix it? Uh, well, I wouldn't want to be the, the CEO. I think it's, it needs a turnaround CEO at many levels. I think they need to shrink. I think they need to do a reset. Uh, I don't think. I think if they announce 10, 20 percent workforce cuts and a focus on a couple verticals, I don't even think the stock would drop. So I think they, they have to come to Jesus and pick something kind of like the board game risk. You know, they've boiled the earth, but it's not working. And now they need to retrench and figure out what's core to the platform. Right now, they've attacked the world. The world, like we're seeing in real life, is full of hate right now and democracy uh, challenge in many democratic uh, countries are slipping. And you're seeing that play out on Twitter as well with just the, the, the hate. So 
you know, they're being valued, they're undervalued um, for sure in a world that Facebook's valued at where they're at. But the market's not completely stupid in that the market is voting and saying whether they're undervalued or not. Uh, you still have to have a plan to get it to be worth $25, 30000000000 billion. You can't just hope. And the users are, are full of angst. The, the value prop is slipping each day from a global perspective. And, and it feels cool, but that's not going to save the company. It's Thursday night games. So I believe, you know, I believe they had some great ideas that they dropped too quickly, like e-commerce, especially around transactions. So, you know, for me, I would have early on focused on verticals. I would have early on focused on getting in the brokerage business, getting into the transaction business. I probably would have bought one of the fantasy sports companies and owned the, the transaction around gaming and taken on both the SEC and New York governor instead of uh, their free speech stuff. Is never gonna. It's not important. It doesn't matter. They're not the government. So I think those are the kind of policy mistakes they made and strategic mistakes they made. Would they maybe it would be worth less today? But if you look at the stock, like the key thing in looking at the stock is, you know, they're 12 billion now or 10 billion. They were at 12 billion five years ago. I think if they had really stuck to a plan, uh, maybe they'd only be at 10 billion today, but they'd have a billion dollar opportunity around transactions and sports and finance and lead gen around just helping people get paid for their for their knowledge and their leads, whether it's a partnership with Amazon, just simple stuff. So I think I don't know how you change it now because I don't want to watch the NFL on my phone. Uh, I don't want to watch the debates. You know, I may want to watch five minutes of it. And for the for the company that's going to buy them they're all over the place. So, you know, Salesforce can't buy them because what does Salesforce care about the NFL? And uh, Apple doesn't need to buy them because it's a headache around media and around, uh, you know, Tim Cook doesn't want to probably be bothered around uh, things that were said in Iran when they're trying to ship phones there. So I definitely don't think, I mean, it'd be great if they did. I own a few shares of Twitter, but I don't think Apple buys them. So, you know, maybe a Twitter or a Verizon or a Chinese telecom, but you know, and the, that whole problem with China buying them is like the Del Coronado in, in Coronado. You know, the government just, the Treasury just blocked the Chinese from buying that asset. So, you know, Twitter's, Twitter needs to build the business themselves. So it just feels like they need to retrench first and then come from a stronger base. That was a long answer. Moving on from stock investing to startup investing, you were considered one of the early super angels. Why did you decide to go from being an angel investor to creating a fund with social leverage? Hmm. You know, you get you get tired. We were doing single-purpose vehicles. We had also set up a kind of a studio format. Tom and I with Social Leverage LLC. So we were raised money to run it as a company, like a like a, a mini holding company. And, you know, what happened with our holding company in 2007, 2008, was we made a bunch of investments with the first money we raised, and the companies took off, Buddy Media, TweetDeck, uh, StockTwits, uh, TicketFly, eToro. And so what we didn't understand is how to price all these things and raise the next round. It was complicated. We just, structurally, I think we chose the wrong vehicle, although that asset, although that company's going to be amazing over 20, 30 years. It is a holding company. And so 
it's just a complicated thing to run. Betaworks does it. Uh, there's a lot of incubators around, and just didn't fit my uh, eye once we were doing it for two, three years. So we continue to roll money and invest that and, and run that as a company. But the second time around, we decided to do it as a fund, 2011 or 12, I believe. And how has your investing strategy changed over the years? Uh, well, I mean, we definitely as an early angel, was like, I can make a decision in one meeting. And now that we were, you know, I'm over 50 and I've had great first meetings and great investments and really horrific outcomes from investing quickly. Uh, so I've seen everything. So I, I just prefer to spend more time and write bigger checks. And we definitely don't care about social proof. Uh, social proof has never been something that's worked for me. Uh, I've been investing and trading for so long that I don't need other people to tell me what to do. Uh, I do like to hear other people invest in a certain area. Before I'd like to trend follow, so I don't like to be the first guy to invest in a sector, but I definitely like to see some uh, proof in the industry, but I don't care who's investing with me or against me. Uh, I've never bothered me, so I think that's made the step up easier. Um, but that's how it's changed as well. It's like we, we're, we're tired of you know, 15 people in the initial cap table, so we decided to move up the cap table. In, uh, in Harry uh, Stebbins' recent 20-minute VC podcast, you mentioned that price was something that you know, prevented you from making uh, investments in Twitter and Zynga. How does price factor into decisions today? Not as much. We, we, we're cheap. I'm Canadian. Uh, it's genetic. Uh, Tom's Canadian as well, and Gary is uh, actually Russian, but American. So we... You know, as, as I've learned, you know, if price is the absolute only reason you're not going to do something, then do it. You know, when I looked at, but at the same time, we run a fund, and we, you know, our LPs don't want us to do uncapped notes, nor do we, and our investors don't want us to do hundred million dollar, you know, A rounds. We're seed investors. You know, I passed on DraftKings at a hundred million because, you know, I don't know, like it's, I thought it was going to be great, but and I'm friends with the the founders, but. Uh, and I appreciated the opportunity, but it's like, I don't know how to, it's everything's great if it works out, but I don't like having to go to my LPs and say, you know, I broke my rules uh, and we lost money. It's just, it's just professional, I believe, to just stick to a framework, whether you're trading your own money or other people's money, investing, same thing, is, you know, you have some guidelines, you set them, the reason you can break rules, and sometimes you should break rules. Uh, but as a practice, I try not to. And especially, you know, the early misses were like, it's my own money. I got to, you know, I always stick to my rules. And because we were one and done back then, uh, you know, investing at a two million or investing at a twenty million is is actually a huge difference. So, uh, you know, being wrong sucks. But you know, I've also made a lot of money selling and and missing deals for those reasons too, based on price and party rounds. So, and I'm not saying it evens out. I think this boom was so big that it would have made sense to do all the overpriced deals uh, in hindsight, but you know, hindsight is, is just that. Social Leverage is an investor in, at this stage, hundreds of companies. Which portfolio company are you most excited about? I wouldn't say hundreds, but maybe a hundred. Um, you know, there's not one. Obviously, I like spent so much time in financial services that I believe <clears throat> some kind of roll-up around or just the investments that we have in Chart IQ, StockTwits, uh, Robinhood, uh, and a few other stealth ones. 
uh, and potentially civic around identity, just just reimagining how this millennial that uh, we all make fun of uh, spends the next 40 years of their life uh, earning, saving, investing, trading, insuring themselves. I think we're at the dawn of some kind of crazy new boom, which could have a crash before it or could, you know, uh, but, you know, money, you know, in a world where people are getting smarter, it should be interesting to see, you know, trillion dollar companies and who participates in those and how it happens and who makes money off these. So I think the financial sector is interesting. It's kind of overfunded. And so there's a pause here the last year uh, that hopefully refreshes. And then, I don't know, marijuana is interesting to me on the product side, not on the growing it or real estate side. Uh, fashionology, not so much Internet of Things, but just fashion and technology and brands uh, and food. So there's a lot of new stuff that I'm reading about and getting interested in. Definitely. Um, you know, we, we just wrapped up uh, this Oktoberfest conference in Coronado, which is a, a favorite event amongst the finance community. Can you tell us a little bit about how the show started um, and came about growing over the years and why people should attend next year? I think you came, well, you know, you're obviously trying to make a buck for stock, to, you know, for stock to it. And I, I believe the online world, or I believed a good online community deserves an offline place to connect. That's what StockTwits was all about, meetups and smart traders getting in a room. Um, and so StockTwits was just an extension of that. Sean, who's been at StockTwits you know, almost since the beginning, it runs, you know, community and and curation and, you know, figuring out how to, you know, keep the community running in the right direction and clean. Uh, he came up with the idea for Stocktoberfest, the name, and it was just a just a, a party in Coronado that celebrated all us goofballs that like to talk about the markets all the time. And now it's evolved into, you know, it's evolved into you know one of the one of the, you know I have to say one of based on feedback one of the really great off deep path think tanks for people that just want to not necessarily just make money, but like find the right people, like this whole investing for profit and joy. you got to make money. Why shouldn't you try and be, make money? And then I don't want to just make 6% a year. I want to make 80% a year. And that's not greedy. That just makes common sense. That if I'm going to work this hard, I want to make that kind of money. So how do I build a group of people that think like that? And, you know, we're not trying to get together to talk about the end of the world. We're trying to say, if the world ends, how do we make money? If the world ends, what's going to work when we come out of this? So it's a very positive kind of collegial environment. And it kind of works. And this year we're 400. I think we probably cap it at 500 uh, just because of the island itself. But we're going to do some other events in New York and uh, Chicago this year, a couple big events. That's exciting. Yeah, it was a great show. I'm going to wrap up here with uh, some quick-fire questions, uh, a format that I borrowed from the 20-Minute VC and, and others. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you a question, and I uh, would love to get the person that comes to your mind. What apps can't you live without? Ooh. For a while, it was Slack off that, mostly. Um, I'd like, I guess I would say WordPress, just because I'm so ingrained in it. But I guess I could live without it. But I mean, it is where I housed 11 years of writing. I would say I don't think there's an app. I mean, Gmail. 
uh, Google Maps. Um, what do I use every day? I mean, obviously, I love Uber. I could live without it, though. So I guess Gmail for now, and you know, news isn't important to me. Uh, so Maps obviously is important to me. So I guess those are the two. I'm just going to look at my phone quickly. The front page. Obviously, I need a financial app, so I'm going to say Stock Twits because it gives me what I need to check in, and I check it the most. Uh, even though I use Twitter a lot, I definitely could use Live Without It. I have it. Periods. And you know, I like a music app, but there's not one I could live without. Uh, and my phone. So, so really, that's it. And my camera. So I think that's the problem in the industry right now. Uh, oh, there's not an app for wives. Huh? So that's it. It's kind of a shame, good. but uh, that's where I think we're at in this stall. Is you know what do you, what do you really really need? It's kind of like the Swiss Army knife. There's really only a few things you need. Right. It, it seems you have crowds of people around you all the time. How do you manage your celebrity status? I, ca I pack. I carry heat. <laughs> oh. Uh, taser? No, what do I carry? I don't shower. People just get sick of standing around me after 20 minutes. The, there's not crowds of people around me, actually. That's, that's nice of you to say. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know me as social, but you know me also for being around me for years is that I like being alone, too. I don't like being bothered. So I keep distance from, from it. But swarms of, of friends and things don't bother me. I'm, I'm socially... I would say comfortable talking to a hundred people at once, and that goes back to being a stand-up and failing. And I'm comfortable. It took years, but you know, I thrive in front of uh, speaking in front of large groups. I, I feel I have a message. Uh, I feel it's positive. I feel it's doable. I feel people can follow me. Um, and you know, what I've been working on, as you know, for a long time, is just taking it more seriously and having a tighter message. So that's been more fun. But I do like, I mean, part of it is I'm supposed to have a crowd because we have a good message. So I enjoy it, actually. Worse for the U.S., Trump or Goldman Sachs? Well, I think, I think it's Trump cause, because he doesn't seem human. He has no empathy. Goldman has empathy. Well, it's Goldman's a corporation, so you can't get rid of him. Trump we can get rid of. He's just a person. Uh, Goldman's a much more complicated issue because... Individually, there's great people. As a corporation, they just are there to make money and and do with that for their shareholders or for themselves. And you know that's where U.S. has its problem. This is the way we invest, the way we don't punish. We have enough laws, and we don't use. We're just not enforcing them, and that's uh, a shame. It is. It is. Goldman's the bigger problem long term, and I think Trump will go away. Uh, the media says they want him to go away, but God forbid he does. They need him, and that's why I don't read as much. And people should stop. Like people need to stop freaking out. But at the same time, I don't know how he got this far, and I don't know how Goldman got stronger than ever. But we let them. You know, it's our fault. And so, longer term, we're going to have to deal more with the Goldman Sachs. Uh, Trump's seven years old, so. You know, whatever he has, it's not going to last forever. On fintech, what is the next big trend, and or or is it played out? Well, I think the next big trend is business model, right? Like subscription over assets under management, uh, service over 
fees. Um, it's just going to be a business model. It's not going to be anything. Like I said, there's, you know, there's only a few apps you need. Uh, everybody needs to take their money seriously. Everybody needs to learn the language of this. Everybody should be able to read a statement and figure out what they need without spending a lot of money on products. So I think it's just about business model and branding and trust. So there is no next big thing in finance other than, you know, I think a lot of the companies are there and ready to do it that we've invested in and other companies have invested in. So I don't expect, I think most of the great stuff for this next generation has been funded. Uh, so it'll be much harder to, unless someone comes along with a great uh, business model and a unique a attack at uh, customer acquisition. I think we're already there. Do you have a hot stock tip for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I've been talking about PayPal and iRobot. I mean, they're not tips. They're just stocks that I own. Obviously, I still like Google as a conglomerate. I like Nike down 30% here. Like all the fashionology companies, Lulu and Under Armour and Nike as a basket down they're out of favor. But as a tip, no. But I like Schwab as just a hedge on fintech because Schwab actually already has one. They have all the assets. Um, so I've been long Schwab a long time. There's an ETF that I've owned for a while, GRID, G-R-I-D, which is electricity and water. So I keep it simple. I share that portfolio all the time. But it's not. there's no tip. I think the tip is that people can do this themselves and people can build their own portfolios and they don't have to buy the S&P 500. But they should buy the S&P 500 if if the choice is just cash and they should learn how to dollar cost average. That's the tip. I mean, understanding, you know, if we see red for 30 days in a row, that's not bad, that's good. As an investor, if you've seen green for 30 days in a row, that felt good, but that not that doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't think the opposite. So it's just a kind of a red-green thing that I try and educate people on is keep their emotions out of it and understand how the other the other people are thinking. Because you're investing against other people, not so much against uh, yourself. What do you collect and why? Uh, underwear. I have seven, seven, eight hundred pairs of underwear. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do I collect? Um, I don't anymore. We've moved so much. We pare down, pare down. We like the utility over time of going smaller. Uh, the peak Peak, peak collection was like 06, 07. And um, where you had too many friends, you had too many deals, you had too much, too many accounts, you had too many, too much square footage, too much leverage. Uh, so obviously it's now social leverage. So it's all about your network and the right people in your network and the Peloton. So, you know, it's the opposite of 2006, 2007, which is why we started social leverage which is a period of the opposite of financial leverage where you've got to pare down your, your things and start building your network to accelerate you, your next generation, your kids, to give them the, the means to survive in this next world. One question I get all the time from, about social leverage is, is the name. And whenever I meet entrepreneurs also uh, on behalf of social leverage, people ask um, you know whether social leverage invests in social startups or communities or uh, things like that. How did you come up with the name, and, and what does it mean? 
Well, just like I said before, the social leverage is about people and the network and the platform and the marketplace and the and the acceleration and the speed and the timing. It's you got to get all those things right. It starts with people. Uh, everybody has a different thing. We're, when we're wrong, we're wrong about the people. It's definitely our fault or the people that we invested in. It's not about anything else. It just didn't work, you know, for whatever reason. And from there, it's the team. Obviously, people in the team, and then obviously, it's can you deliver, you know, a product that there's a significant market for. And so social leverage is just that whole interplay of like, I don't think you need endless supplies of capital and debt. I think what you need is uh, people and teams that understand the problem with domain experience that are willing to go fast and pin their ears back and use the Peloton to go forward and strike and keep expanding. And, my, and finally, when it's all said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, my family, and like, do, are they net? Are we net contributors? You know, it's like a bank account. So do we, you know, not about my footprint, just about you know, the leverage that we leave behind, you know, or to make sure everybody is, in, at least in our family and in our circle, is in a better spot than when we met them the first time. Awesome. Well, that's all the questions I have. I, I just wanted to thank you so much for doing the podcast today. And it's been a pleasure working with you um, over the last uh, almost two years. And uh, really excited for what's next with uh, yourself and StockTwits, social leverage, and, uh, and everything that you do. Okay, good. I hope you press play. Shoot, I forgot record, actually. <laughs> I'd really like to thank Howard for his time today and just want to say that I really love working with that guy. Don't forget to follow at Howard Lindzen at StockTwits and Twitter. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to the VentureForth podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also follow at VentureForthPod on Twitter for our latest updates. As always, I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani, and thank you for listening to the VentureForth podcast.